everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we're going to be discussing Season 6, Episode 4, Weekend at Bobby's, written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin, and directed by Jensen Ackles. This is the first episode that he has directed, and thank goodness it's not his last. He does a good job. There is really so much going on in this episode, and I'm so impressed with Jensen handling it all so well. I think this is going to be another one that's easier to talk about as we go through it, considering half my tag for it is just ranting and complaining about how later canon will absolutely screw this episode over with their timeline fuckery over Gavin. The most shocking thing about it is this was Dab's own episode. Gavin was his character. And the fuckery happened by Buck Lemming under his watch as showrunner. So honestly, dude, what were you even thinking? Or maybe he just had so little control over Buck Lemming that screwing over years of narrative consistency was the resigned compromise he'd been willing to make to stop something worse from happening. Who knows? But the fact it's not something I personally have to worry about for a couple more years, at least as far as the podcast is concerned, that I will just do my best to avoid devolving into complaining about it today. Good luck to all of us. Mostly because there's just so much other important info we need to get through that pertains directly to season six. Just like last week and us learning about what heaven is up to in season six, mess. This kind of gives us a little bit of insight into what the monstery, demony side of season six is up to. Of course, we get Bobby working hard to recover control of his soul from Crowley, and we see Bobby and Rufus working together and what Bobby's life is like when he's not out hunting with Sam and Dean. Poor guy, can't even enjoy his peach cobbler or, you know, make nice with his neighbor. Anyway, We also get more hints that something is seriously weird with monster populations across the world, even if we don't yet get any sort of reason as to why. We will eventually. I do find it fascinating that there was still a debate in the writer's room at this point over whether Sam knew that he and the Campbells were directly working for Crowley, which is the reason Sam defends Crowley at the end of the episode when Dean is all ready to burn his bones anyway like take one problem off the table. Even if he didn't end up taking that route over the next few episodes and they made it clear that Sam was just as in the dark about the Crowley level of participation in the monster hunting that Samuel made the deal himself and kept that hidden from everybody else. It was a door that they deliberately left open here in case the writing decided to take that route. And I appreciate it as one of the few times in canon that Sam wasn't prepared to kill Crowley just for existing, and the fact that it happened when he didn't have a soul to hold him back. It's almost like he was just overcompensating for that lack of soul, like going, I mean, I know I have memories of me with my soul wanting to kill this dude, but maybe Dean's right and I should just try and not make a mistake that would be something completely like one step too far out of character for playing Sam Winchester here. And I appreciate that. We also get some interesting information from Crowley that becomes far more interesting on a rewatch. He fought and scraped to become King of Hell, thinking his life would become easier, being in charge and not subject to the whims of anyone else. But it's clear even here that he's 
frustrated with the entire gig. Demons are inflexible morons who can't see the bigger picture, etc., etc., that he will rant about to Bobby, and Bobby's like, I just don't care. Well, I care. (laughs) We'll eventually see behind the curtain a bit how he rose to the position of King of Hell, why he grabbed for that position, and his very many regrets over it all. But it's also very interesting as a parallel to what Cass is and has been struggling with in heaven. At the end of season five, he believed he'd been brought back to help reorganize heaven, you know, play sheriff. And we already know that's going very poorly and that he has almost no authority under Raphael. But we don't have all the key info as to why yet nor the fact that both Cass and Crowley teamed up because they both are facing similar troubles. Unfortunately, it's also their as-yet-unrevealed collaboration that's behind the perplexing monster behavior that drives this entire episode, which makes this one all the more interesting on rewatch, when you know what the bigger picture is. There's also Dean's uneasy feelings about Sam finally getting stated openly and directly to Bobby, and Bobby finally making some of his own needs known in a moment of frustrated desperation. Sometimes all you gotta do is ask. I think I'm likely gonna spend the episode pointing out lines that become obvious on rewatch that folks might not even notice on a first watch, which is fine, honestly, because I'm also just gonna enjoy watching Jensen direct. That said, there's not much in my tag for this one that isn't just yelling about later canon and Gavin, but what is there is worth a glance. And on that note, let's hand things over to Action Ackles, our favorite director. And if somebody is unaware of why I referred to him as our favorite director, Jensen, when he was first on Twitter and his first episode that he directed after he joined Twitter was airing he was live tweeting it and using the hashtag your favorite director and other people were using the hashtag action ackles it was just very cute and so those are jensen's names for himself (laughs) which makes them all the more amusing in my mind anyway to the then segment we open with the reminder of how bobby met crowley with crowley showing up in bobby's house letting him know that he can give him anything he wants including the location of death last season. All it takes is trading your soul, and I swear I'll give it back, but I'm holding on to it as insurance for now. Well, now we're out past the end of the apocalypse, and Crowley still has Bobby's soul, and he stopped returning Bobby's calls. We're then reminded of Rufus Turner's existence, that he's not the Christmas card type, but that he's an old hunter buddy of Bobby's. We're also reminded of the existence of Jody Mills and her introduction to hunting. We're reminded that before his Crossroads deal, Bobby was in a wheelchair, and Crowley just threw that in for free as a bonus with his deal. And then we are thrust directly back into recent canon, where Dean is asking Sam if he's okay, because he doesn't really seem okay to Dean. And we get a little montage of quick clips of Sam looking very much less than okay. And I paused it on the very first scene of the episode after the now title card. And it's a close up of an old looking television, one that still had the knobs on it. 
And in my dark room where I can't see the black border of my actual television, I was like, holy shit, it looks just like I've got a really, really ancient television. <laughs> and it freaked me out for a second. I was like, whoa, what what happened? <laughs> so this is the sort of mental state I am in, apparently. And heck, I'm sorry. It was <laughs> apologies in advance if this episode is slightly less coherent than usual. I haven't been drinking or anything or I'm, I'm be a little tired, but like <laughs> I'm thrown off by simple optical illusions, apparently. So here we go now, or rather, as the subtitle lets us know, one year ago. So right after the apocalypse failed. There's a TV on in Bobby's house on KLOT 44 in Galveston, Texas. And if you listen closely to the newscaster's voice, it's Jensen's dad. Aww. I love how Jensen includes his family in episodes he directs. The voiceover is letting us know that yesterday in Galveston, they were having like hurricane-like conditions. And today it's beautiful and sunny. What's going on with the weather? It's all a mystery to them, but Bobby, of course, knows. Well, it's because we stopped the apocalypse. Duh. <laughs> Bobby's not paying much attention to the news. He's at his desk, building a summoning ritual for Crowley. The apocalypse is over. Darn it, he wants his soul back. That was the deal. Crowley is congratulating Bobby on successfully stopping the apocalypse, and congratulating him on Sam having a good death or whatever, diving into the cage. Crowley says he's been celebrating, and Bobby's like, I'd hate to see what you call celebrating. And Crowley agrees. Yes, you would hate it. Bobby offers Crowley a drink. He declines, and Bobby's like, uh, you're too good to drink with me, even though we just saved the world together. And Crowley's like, I doubt you have what I would consider drinking. He doesn't want Bobby's rot gut. He only drinks Craig, aged 30 years at least. Bobby is fishing for information about Crowley. Crowley comes back with a barb about swill like that is going to burn a hole through your soul. Oh, my soul. Because he still owns Bobby's soul. And that's the whole problem. Crowley promised Bobby he'd give it back once they were done with the apocalypse. When Bobby demands his soul back, Crowley's like, oh, you didn't read your contract. And the contract appears burned into Bobby's skin. The clause in question states that Crowley will make, quote, best efforts to return Bobby's soul. And he'd like to, but he just can't. He's made his best effort and failed. So, oops, sorry, you don't get your soul back. And that feels so disingenuous, doesn't it? but very demony. Bobby tells Crowley, well, if you won't give my soul back, you can just rot here. And he flicks the light switch and turns on a bunch of UV lights. And Crowley is standing in a devil's trap that has appeared only now with the correct lighting. Crowley came prepared even for that, though. He gives a whistle and one of his hellhounds comes snarling after Bobby. He's like, you have a choice. You can leave me here and be dog food, or you can free me and we'll just continue on and I get you in 10 years. Bobby breaks the devil's trap, scrapes through it with a knife, and lets Crowley know that he's not done with him yet. And Crowley seems pleased by this and just strolls off. 
Happy hunting, he says. And I think there is at least a little bit of a case to be made. I know I'm already making asides only like two minutes into the episode, so we're all screwed probably. But there is a small case to be made for the fact that when Bobby eventually will die, that he ends up in hell, that it's not wrongful. Because this deal, did he really get a full cancellation? (laughs) Or did Crowley just hold some sort of power over his soul, even though he was released from the deal and technically? But is there still some sort of tether that, you know, he can cash in the chip or whatever and claim the soul without even having to bring in rogue reapers or whatever that was? So just laying it out there that there is some sort of marker on Bobby's soul for hell. And as Bobby ponders what he's going to try next to convince Crowley to return his soul, we cut to the title card. After the title card, we cut to Kenosha, Wisconsin in the present day, looking out into a playground from behind a little thicket of trees where a bunch of kids are playing, moms are wandering around with their kids, and just on the other side of the trees, Sam and Dean are crouched over the bloody body of somebody who has clearly been torn apart by some sort of monster. Dean has found some sort of claw inside the chest cavity of this dead person, so his first call is to Bobby for advice and information on what on earth they might be hunting. Bobby's slow to answer, and Sam and Dean are both like, okay, what's up with Bobby? And I find the tech amusing. They called Bobby on his landline, and Dean takes a picture of the claw in his hand and sends it via email to Bobby and make like a little dial-up connection noise as the picture processes through. But it still comes through, like, instantly. (laughs) And it's like, wow, I bet that was super high tech for way back then, you know? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm old. I find this amusing and humorous. But they've also got six dead bodies that have all been killed by this monster. Dean tells Bobby it's urgent that they need an ID on this as soon as possible, and Bobby lets Dean know that he's kind of busy. And again, Dean implies that Bobby's just lazing around, rather than actively trying to solve his own case, where he's lost his soul. So, yeah, Dean, Bobby doesn't just exist to be your advisor. (laughs) And yet Bobby's just like, all right, yeah, I'll see what I can do. And it's like, Sam and Dean don't always just call Bobby very first thing, you know? They do their own research, too. But they're clearly in over their heads on this one. And it's no wonder why, when we hear the reasoning later on this episode, that you know it's a Lamia that has never been seen outside of Greece. So why would a hunter in the Midwest, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, have ever heard of a, a Lamia and what it could do to people? just like the Okami that Bobby and Rufus are hunting together. Since when would any North American hunter have to deal with a monster that has never been seen outside of Japan? So the monsters are acting in bizarre ways that they never have before, which I think is the much bigger problem that nobody keys into because they're also wrapped up in trying to fix all the little problems individually. And then we enter the montage with the gambler that gives us so much of the background information of Bobby's life that we've never seen before. He's doing research, runs out of territory, realizes there's a book he needs from the library. Balls. 
This is where we start getting Bobby saying balls for everything that's just gone wrong. But we also get to see a little bit of him around town, driving his car, waving at his new neighbor. And that whole developing relationship between them that starts out friendly, but oh my gosh, that poor woman, <laughs> traumatized for life, that, and then we never hear from her ever again. I can only assume that she immediately moved away and never looked back. We get to watch Bobby breaking into the Sioux Falls University library because it's closed. So he just smashes a window and climbs in. And then his car won't start. It's like everything that could go wrong is going wrong. And is this just because he's having a terrible day? Is it because Crowley's trying to prevent him from getting anything accomplished? Who knows? But it's still frustrating as heck. And Bobby goes through so much. He finally gets home with the book he needs at one in the morning, falls asleep while trying to translate this old book, wakes up, takes some no-dos, and just keeps plowing through it. After all that research, at dawn, Bobby finally realizes what they're hunting. It's a Lamia. Dean has never even heard of it. And Bobby's like, yeah, because it never pops up outside of Greece. Once they know what it is, all Dean wants to know is how to kill it. Bobby goes on, there's a couple of ways. Easiest is a silver knife blessed by a priest. And then Dean's like, gotcha, and just hangs up. And we know that that's not going to work. Just like later on, Rufus's stabbing the Okami with the special bamboo knife didn't work. And then he has to call Bobby back in the heat of battle against the thing. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but... I like that parallel between the two failures of the knives in this episode because somebody was too hasty and didn't pay attention enough. Getting all the details of the case, Dean, that might be useful, especially when poor Bobby, we've seen, but Dean hasn't, that it took him all night to figure this out for Dean when Bobby was trying to work on his own issues, you know? Right after Bobby hangs up, somebody yells up to him, hey, I'm still here from down in his basement. And he trudges down there all tired to the demon he has tied up down there. He's got a crossroads demon because he's interrogating her for information about Crowley trying to figure out how to get his soul back. She's playing hard to get for the information, doing her best impersonation of Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct. Bobby just wants Crowley's real human name. The demon just isn't answering. She's like, does tying demons up in your basement make you feel better about that time we killed your wife? But she also doesn't want to be tortured or kept there any longer. So, you know, if she can force Bobby's hand one way or the other into either freeing her or killing her, then she doesn't have to be party to this anymore. Bobby, though, pulls out a weapon that we really haven't seen before. It's a bag of bones. Her bones from when she was human. He dumps them in a bucket and lights a flamethrower or a little torch. And she is like, it won't work. It's just a myth. So obviously this is some sort of myth that demons know about. That their bones can be used against them. But Bobby immediately proves that wrong. It's not a myth. When he shoots the flamethrower at her bones and she starts writhing in the chair and her flesh starts just bubbling on her. 
the woman then starts saying that you don't get it. You don't know what he'll do to me. Bobby's like, you better worry about what I'm going to do to you right now. And she's like, no, you don't understand. He's the king. Bobby's like, yeah, yeah, king of the crossroads. And she's like, no, the king of hell. This is totally new information for Bobby and everyone else. Crowley is suddenly the king of hell. All of hell. Just as he gets that interesting tidbit of information, his doorbell also rings. He blows out his torch and goes up to answer it. And it's his neighbor, there to be welcoming and cute. And Bobby honestly has no idea what to say to this woman. Like, uh, okay? The demon, unfortunately, is making noise down in the basement and Bobby hand waves it away as, oh, stupid horror flicks, I'm, you know guilty pleasure and she's like oh i love horror have you seen drag me to hell and bobby is like i'm trying to avoid it if i can like actually literally him being dragged to hell but she invites him over to watch it with her saturday night she'll make him dinner popcorn it's all very cute she clearly likes bobby at least from afar when she knows nothing about him other than he's her neighbor. Bobby thinks it sounds nice, but, uh, and she's like, oh, don't worry about it. She understands he doesn't want to come over for dinner and a movie. She makes one last pitch to get him to her house, telling him her wood chipper is broken and he kno- she knows he's handy with stuff like that. Maybe he could come over and look at it sometime. She just wants to spend a little more time with Bobby. And that he does agree to, and they awkwardly shake hands, and poor Marcy. When she's gone, Bobby goes back downstairs to his little demon there, who taunts him again about Karen. Like, oh, you're gonna make sweet love to her before you stab her to death? That is what, you know, your thing, right? And Bobby doesn't say a word, he just takes the flamethrower, turns it back on, and burns her bones some more. Bobby is absolutely done with her, though. He's, like, yelling, I want Crowley's name now. And he's unrelenting with the fire. And finally, she gives in and gives it to him. Fergus McLeod. The demon is like, okay, so you got what you want. You got his name. Now send me back. Like, let me out. But Bobby is not about to do that. He tells her he's made his best effort to let her go, but he squirts her bones with lighter fluid, gives him one more shot of the flamethrower, and just incinerates her. But Bobby now has a little bit more information on Crowley. His favorite drink is Craig. He even knows, like, what part of Scotland that is made in. And he knows Crowley's real name, so he can start looking through the historical record for Fergus MacLeod's from that part of Scotland. While Bobby's trying to research Scotland, he's stuck dealing with the normal business of his usual day. Garth, our very first mention of Garth and Cannon, calls Bobby for advice about a vampire. Bobby confirms it doesn't sound at all like a vampire that it doesn't sound like a supernatural case, and to please just let the FBI know about it. And then Bobby's FBI phone rings, and it's Garth reporting it to the FBI. Bobby's like, no, no, the real FBI, you moron. How are you still alive? And obviously Garth is going to improve a lot as a hunter over the years, but, uh, yeah. 
And it's amazing how many other hunters rely on Bobby for information, advice, help, just a cover story, playing the FBI, you know, when somebody tries to confirm their cover story. It's just a much bigger part of Bobby's life than just doing it for Sam and Dean. And so I don't think Sam and Dean really realize that. And in the middle of all those calls, somebody bangs on his door. It's Rufus telling Bobby that he needs to help him bury a body. Rufus apparently brought it there because the law was on his ass, and he figured Bobby's was a safe place to hide out for a little bit and bury this body. But even Rufus is, like, taunting Bobby about just, quote, sitting on his ass all day taking calls. It's like, holy crap, he hasn't sat down or slept in, like, two days at least. But we learn a lot about the current state of things just from their little minute-long conversation here, Rufus having killed the Okami in Billings and Bobby telling him that Sam and Dean are hunting a Lamia in Wisconsin and the monsters are just acting weird. These are monsters that have never been seen outside their normal countries, all of a sudden all converging on the U.S.? Why? Even though they don't have any sort of an answer yet, we know It's because they're all being stirred up deliberately by Crowley, and the mother of all is trying to recruit them, even though she's still trapped in purgatory at this point. There's just a disturbance in the force that big. While they're burying the Okami, Bobby lets Rufus know how his hunt for Crowley's real identity is going, that he's kind of narrowed it down to a region. And Rufus tells Bobby that he's got some contacts over in Scotland, and he'll put out a word to ask for information if he can get it. It's very cute watching this slightly antagonistic relationship he and Rufus have, just sort of taunting each other and one-upping each other, and still, they both clearly enjoy each other's company, for whatever that means. (laughs) Back in the house a little later, Bobby's trying to cut himself a slice of that peach cobbler, He gets the knife almost down to it when the phone rings again. This is a man who just cannot catch a break. It's Dean calling for the another way to kill a Lamia because the silver knife blessed by the priest didn't pan out. The priest has been murdered by the Lamia. I guess they have no priest left to bless it. So while Dean is waiting for Bobby to give him another method, we see Sam getting tossed around the room behind Dean. But as this Lamia is attacking them... Not only is Bobby desperately trying to look up one of the other ways to kill Alamia, he's got someone knocking on his door. Police! Bobby finds out where Dean is, what he's doing, tells him get salt, fire, rosemary, and that's all he can get out before he has to answer the door, and it's the FBI, brought there by an unimpressed Jody Mills. Bobby gives them the, hang on just a sec, it's my mom, on the phone. Bobby then has to couch his instructions on how to kill the Lamia as cooking instructions. Blend the herbs, saute over a high heat, and cook well. Dean tosses the salt mixture, then rips the gas line out of the stove, sets it on fire, and makes a flamethrower out of it. And Bobby calmly is like, okay, great mom, enjoy the roast and hangs up, only to turn around and find that Jody and the FBI agent have entered his home. Yes, he is looking for Rufus. 
The FBI dude wants to inspect Bobby's house to make sure that Rufus Turner hadn't been there dropping bodies off. And we all watched him do that already, so we know the body's there. Jody finally steps in and is like, let me scope the place out. Me and Bobby have got history. I know the guy. And you can just wait outside. Bobby's like, what the hell did you send him outside for? And Jody's like, I figured you didn't want him in here. And Bobby's like, of course I don't. I've got a body in the basement. And she's like, okay, then. Outside's probably better. And he's like, well, there's a body buried in the yard, too. Of course, in the few minutes that he was out there unsupervised, the FBI dude found the hole where they had just buried the Okami, except it's no longer filled in. Something has dug its way out of the hole. The Okami wasn't dead. Bobby's got much bigger problems than this FBI agent thinks. He asked Bobby to explain the hole. Bobby's like, oh yeah, septic tank. At least the FBI agent backs off. Later that night, Bobby calls Rufus back and is like, get back here. Your Okami wasn't dead. And Rufus is like, what? I'm three states away. What am I supposed to do about it? Bobby asked Rufus what the Okami had been feeding on when he'd found it, because apparently it will go for the same type of victim again. And it was single white females while they slept. And Bobby has a freak out moment. His poor neighbor woman, Marcy, is a single white female who's about to go to sleep because it's nighttime. We cut to Marcy getting ready for bed in her little frilly nightgown and her little satiny pink bathrobe. Not a good color for blonde women on Supernatural to survive the night in. And we get the shot of something zooming in front of the camera. She's being stalked. And not just by Bobby, who comes barging through her door demanding to know where her bedroom is which she sees in a completely different context, like, okay, that's not a normal thing to do or ask. And he goes barreling past her with a shotgun to examine her bedroom. Bobby asks her as she's freaking out, have you seen anything weird? And she's like, other than you? And then something catches her eye and she looks up at the corner of the ceiling And screams, because that's where the Okami was hiding, laying in wait for her. The Okami tosses Bobby out the window, giving Marcy enough time to shut the door behind herself and get to safety, and then jumps out the window after Bobby, and they end up rolling on the ground by the wood chipper that Marcy had asked Bobby to help her fix because it wasn't working. The Okami throws Bobby against the switch that turns on the wood chipper, and he gets a little idea, but she gets him almost pushed into the wood chipper before he finally wrestles her off, just in time for Marcy to come running out, screaming, Bobby, no! Standing in front of the wood chipper, unfortunately. And as Bobby feeds the Okami into it, Marcy is unfortunately in the right place at the right time to just get completely drenched in okami goo. Bobby uh, staggers out from behind the wood chipper, turns it off, looks at this poor woman covered from head to foot in gore, and he's like, I thought your wood chipper was broke. And she's like, I just said that to get you over here. And then finally Bobby's like, oh, well, I guess I could come over for dinner some night. That might be fun. And she's just like, I I don't think so. Like, 
no way. This was the most horrifying experience of my life. And uh, no offense, but uh, no thank you. Poor Bobby. Story of his life. At least he's still got the peach cobbler to keep himself company with. Next morning, Bobby's talking to Rufus, who's shocked that Bobby managed to take down the Okami on his own, considering he didn't have a bamboo knife blessed by a Shinto priest to hand. Bobby explains Woodchipper, and that's where we learn Woodchipper, yeah, trumps pretty much everything. Rufus, however, delivers a heartfelt and genuine thank you to Bobby and admits that he screwed up, and he thanks Bobby for covering his ass. Bobby tells Rufus that he probably still owes Rufus more than Rufus owes him anyway. And Rufus says, okay, well, add one more thing to the list of things you owe me, because I got a lead on Crowley and where he's from. Fergus Roderick MacLeod, born in Canis Bay, Scotland in 1661. But the most important thing is that Crowley had a son, and apparently he was the captain of a trading ship, that wrecked off the coast of Massachusetts. So not the lore that we end up getting later on in canon about the star and him coming over to America and sinking before he ever got here. Apparently he made it to America, became the captain of a ship, and was just lost at sea off the coast of Massachusetts doing his job, not just trying to get here all wide-eyed like later canon will suggest. So just another reason to be angry at it. And the most important thing is that Gavin McLeod's signet ring is part of a museum exhibit that's currently near where Rufus is. Bobby has to grudgingly ask for Rufus's help in getting the ring. And Rufus teases him like, yeah, I'm already halfway there. I'll be there by midnight. Like he'd been planning to do it whether or not Bobby had asked him to. Rufus kind of lays out what he believes Bobby's plan is to trade Crowley's son's ghost for Bobby's soul. Bobby's like, yeah, something like that. He knows Crowley better than Rufus does, obviously. And he knows that Crowley's not going to trade for the ghost of his son, that he's a demon. He's not going to care. Bobby needs leverage against Crowley. That's what he's looking for from Gavin. Even without full knowledge of the plan, Rufus does approve and hopes it works out for Bobby. He actually does care. Later that night, Bobby is about to cut himself a slice of that peach cobbler again when his phone rings yet again. The caller ID says John P. Jones, and Bobby immediately answers and he's like, Dean, are you alright? I guess that's one of Dean's code names on one of his phones. Dean's not calling because he has an emergency with the Lamia. They got rid of it just fine. But Dean's sitting in his motel room, finally with a moment to breathe himself. And he calls Bobby for help with Sam. He's worried about Sam. There's something just wrong, not right about Sam. We get a glimpse of Sam out the window as Dean's trying to articulate exactly what's up with Sam. And Bobby gets another call on call waiting. Dean has a few questions for Bobby about the year that he missed out on and Bobby cuts him off and he's like, wait, I I got another call. And Dean is appalled. Like, what? This isn't your first priority dealing with my problem? Bobby tells Dean he has to take it. It's important. Dean's like, more important than Sam. We know what it is. It's freaking his fucking soul on the line here. And it's Rufus. 
calling as he's being pursued by the cops. He got the ring, but is now being chased. Bobby's like, just don't swallow the ring. And Rufus is like, right, I'm swallowing it. And he does, just as Bobby can hear him getting pulled over and arrested. And oh God, what's he going to do now? But Bobby hangs up on Rufus because there's nothing he can do for Rufus right now and goes back to Dean. And Dean's like, what the hell? Dean's like laying his heart on the line here. He's like, Bobby, you're the one person that I can talk to about this stuff, about Sam, about Lisa and Ben. And, you know, I kind of need you. And Bobby's very distracted because he's concerned about Rufus and the ring and his own soul. Dean knows none of that. You know what? And Bobby, Dean wouldn't probably be so pushy, needy, and demanding if he had any clue what you were trying to do. Of course, their attitude changes immediately the second they know what's really going on. But it takes Bobby coming to this point of just breaking and laying it all on the line for them. It's Dean calling Bobby selfish for not being willing to listen to his problems, though, that prompts Bobby to ask Dean to bring Sam in and put him on the line, too. Bobby pours himself a glass of whiskey and lays this all out for Sam and Dean both. He's like, I love you too, like you're my own, but sometimes you are the most whiny, self-absorbed sons of bitches. I'm selfish? Whether it's scrounging lore or saving your asses or just being somebody to bitch to about each other. He comes through for them every time. And the one time he needs them to come through for him, he busts out with the line about, you know, you may have forgotten, but Crowley owns my soul and the meter is running. And Sam's just like shocked at this. He's like, all you had to do was ask. Dean's like, yeah, anything you need, we're there. And Bobby's just like, well, finally. The next day, he meets up with Jody. Jody tells Bobby that she didn't bother filing an official report about Marcy's, quote, home invasion. And Bobby appreciates that. Jody figures it's some sort of monster thing. It was. Bobby is asking Jody to help him get Rufus extradited to their jurisdiction on murder charges and Jody thinks he's joking. She's like, there's so much involved in that. It would cost every marker I could cash in. It could tank my career. And Bobby just remains calm and serious as she's like, and then your friend is locked up here on a murder charge. And Bobby's like, well, let me worry about that. And obviously we never hear about it again. So he gets Rufus off of that somehow. But he reminds Jody that he's done a lot for the town over the years, some she knows about, like the zombies, and some she doesn't. And I think that shakes her a little bit, knowing, oh, the zombies were bad enough for me to notice, but um, what other stuff has gone on in this town that I don't know about? In a moment of self-awareness, Bobby admits that he's not good at this whole asking for help thing. But Jody tells him she's very sorry, but she can't. Later that night, as Bobby's lamenting the end of his plan to try and save his soul, a knock on his door, and it's Jody, who has Rufus with her. Jody obviously reconsidered. She tells them they have one hour, 
And then she's calling the feds and telling them that Rufus busted himself out and setting them on his trail. She's like, if I lose my job over this, I am taking it out of your ass. And we know she doesn't lose her job over it. Thank goodness. But the point is that Bobby now has Gavin McLeod's ring. After Rufus leaves to go on the run, Bobby sets up a summoning circle to summon the ghost of Gavin. Bobby and Gavin have a nice long chat. And then even later, maybe the same night, maybe a totally different night, because we know Sam and Dean had to have time to get Scotland first. (laughs) Bobby sets up another summoning ritual back in his basement. Bobby's first comment when Crowley appears underneath the devil's trap painted on the ceiling is, you look like hammered crap. And he does. Crowley looks exhausted and run down. I wonder if he's having a harder time in hell as Cass is in heaven. Bobby reveals that he knows that Crowley is now the big boss down in hell and asks if there's trouble in paradise. And Crowley's like, you have no idea. Demons are stupid and awful people and they are set in their ways and will not try anything new. Crowley feels relieved to be able to tell somebody how much he's now agreeing with Lucifer's plan to quote, spike anything with black eyes to wipe demons out as a species because, oh my god, he is tired of being in charge of them all. And Bobby, unfortunately, has been playing Dr. Phil to way too many people this episode and is at the end of his rope with that. He's just like, well, boo-hoo for you. Crowley won't even let Bobby start to inform him of why he's summoned him again. He's just like, let me fill in the details. And he does a back and forth that sort of mockingly ends up being like what happened the first time they went head to head at the beginning of this episode, that Crowley's very confident that Bobby's not going to be getting his soul back and Crowley's just going to be leaving again. And Bobby's like, oh, no, no, we are not done yet. Then Gavin's ghost appears. Crowley's like, Gavin, my son. And he's like, puts on this show of being all emotional about seeing his son again after so long. Then it's like, so I don't want my son back. I don't give a shit about that kid. You know, Bobby, you wasted your time finding my son. I I don't care to have anything to do with him. You can't hurt me with him. Did you really think that he'd be a bargaining chip? And Bobby's like, he's not a chip. I was just using him to dig up information on you. As Bobby found out, Gavin hates Crowley more than Crowley hates Gavin, and he was more than happy to help Bobby uncover where Crowley's bones are buried. Apparently, Crowley sold his soul in life for an extra three inches below the belt, and Crowley jokes that he was just trying to hit double digits. And it's like, was that really what Crowley sold his soul for? Something so petty? Or is that just what he told his son or his son knew about why he did it? Was it to cover something bigger up? We never really do find out. And I hope that that wasn't actually the true reason Crowley sold his soul. Something tells me that he was already a smarter person and a smarter plotter than such a petty trade. Bobby tosses Crowley the phone that's already connected to Dean and Sam standing at Crowley's grave where they've dug up his bones and are ready to torch them if Crowley doesn't hand back Bobby's soul. 
not like Crowley can do anything about it. He's trapped in a devil's trap. Even Crowley suggests that burning the bones of a demon is just a myth, that it won't hurt the demon. Bobby's like, well, I know an employee of yours who would disagree. We get to watch her burn completely this time in flashback. That is the leverage that Bobby had been building to all episode long. Your bones for my soul. That's the trade. Crowley realizes he is truly trapped this time. He has been bested by Bobby Singer. He very grudgingly erases the contract from Bobby's skin. He's free. His soul is his own. Except that Crowley's own vindictiveness against him for this brilliant act of rebellion will end up landing Bobby in hell eventually anyway, just to be rescued for further plot reasons. But Bobby is satisfied and happy for now. Before Dean can even hang up the phone, though, as soon as Bobby had released Crowley from the devil's trap, Crowley shows up at his grave to claim his bones. Dean wants to torch them anyway, and Sam shuts the lighter in Dean's hand and says, Now, he's a dick, but a deal's a deal. Meaning, we're better than he is. He was trying to break his deal with Bobby? Nah. We're going to honor this one. Crowley tells Sam he doesn't need him to fight his battles for him and to get bent. And again, that's the little doorway they left open in case the writers of the later episodes did decide to make Sam complicit in the whole Crowley scheme. As Sam and Dean are driving back to the airport or wherever, away from the graveyard later that night, It's so funny to see them driving a crappy little right-hand drive car. Dean's on the wrong side of the car. (laughs) You usually see Dean on the right and Sam on the left. No, Dean's on the left. Sam's on the right. And they're crammed into this tiny little car. An Austin Metro, I think. Like, hunched over because they're so squished in there. Talking to Bobby on the phone. Bobby can finally admit that Sam and Dean went above and beyond for him, you know, taking a nine-hour flight just to save him, and, you know, they're going to have to make the same flight coming back, and Dean white-knuckled his way through four puke bags on the plane, but he stayed sober, even, and Dean was, like, ready for anything. He had a fork. (laughs) He he couldn't even bring a real weapon on the plane with him, you know? Bobby tries to apologize for how he spoke to them earlier, I was in a tough spot and whatever. And Sam and Dean immediately cut him off. They're like, no, Bobby, you were right. We take you for granted. You've been cleaning up our messes for years and we owed you big time and still do and probably always will. Bobby brushes aside all the feelings he talk. He doesn't want to go there over the phone, just like getting all up in their feels. And Dean rolls his eyes at the, okay, well, let's roll credits on this chick flick comment from Bobby like yeah he expected it he knew Bobby wouldn't just take the compliments and their genuine thanks for everything and Bobby advises them to try some of the local food while they're there he heard it was pretty exotic you know Scotland what haggis (laughs) shepherd's pie I mean that's good but is it exotic really Dean makes a joke about trying the olive garden like First of all, I don't think they have Olive Gardens over there, but (laughs) honestly, yeah, just find a pub. You'll find something good to eat. And finally, Bobby gets to sit down with his peach cobbler. 
He's got ownership of his soul again. Everyone he cares about is safe and accounted for. And he can finally take a breather. Maybe he should get some sleep, too. He just gets the fork up to his mouth when his phone rings. Of course, he grudgingly goes and answers it because it's the FBI line and he has to vouch for another hunter who used him as cover. And that's how the episode ends. Poor Bobby's life is a never-ending stream of dealing with other people's problems. So no wonder he never gets help on his own problems. But he's got to learn to be better about asking for help when he truly needs it. And Dean is honestly just getting to that point where he's willing to ask for help about the really big stuff, his personal stuff. And Bobby's really the only person he's ever talked to about that stuff before. I mean, eventually, yes, Cass will be someone he opens up to more. But Cass has clearly got his own issues right now. It's not like Dean can just summon him up for help when he knows he's fighting some sort of weird angel war and has drama going on there and flew off before Dean could even ask him questions about what was going on. So he really doesn't have anyone else he can talk to. That's the episode. Jensen did a really good job directing. There's so many moving parts to this episode between the Rufus stuff and the neighbor stuff and the Jody stuff and the demon in the basement stuff. And the Okami stuff, and the Lamia stuff, and the Bones stuff, and the... There's just so much that just seems like a tiny part of this episode that moves this episode forward, but it's more relevant in a bigger sense. We know that later this season, they will pretend to torch Crowley's bones, and they will, Crowley and Cass together, put on a show of doing it for Sam and Dean as if Crowley was off the table permanently then. And it's all just part of the set dressing of what's really going on behind the scenes this season. We don't know that as viewers yet. I mean, we as reviewers know it, but first time viewers don't. So it makes rewatching season six so much better than watching it the first time. It just works so much better when you already know what's going on. <laughs> At least to an extent. I mean, you don't have to remember every detail from your first watch, but hopefully you'll remember at least enough to kind of see the big patterns developing in the background because it's actually really well done, even if it's kind of clumsily handled sometimes and the set dressing changes almost at random mid-season for no discernible reason. But, hmm, it's frustrating because it's got the bones Ha ha ha. Of a very good season. But like halfway through, they just kind of set those bones on fire and are like, well, I guess we're going to try this from this angle now. And it's like, man, build one idea. There's just too many, like this episode, too many ideas that are required to build all the little set pieces that form the big picture. And I think that's the overall problem with season six as a whole. It's not a bad season. It's just kind of clunky and got way too many parts. Anyway, I don't know what else to say about this one, honestly. We learned more about Crowley in this episode than we've known cumulatively about him, that he's now the king of hell, that he was born in the 1600s in Scotland, and what his real name was, and just sort of a little bit about his background, that he had a son who died in a shipwreck. 
who was apparently a ship's captain and not just some passenger. Whatever. I hate what Buck Lemming did to Gavin. Because they also did it to Bobby and Crowley. So, anyway. We'll get to that in about two years. We got plenty of time to build up to it. And season six has an awful lot more to throw at us that all fits into these little building block pieces that they've been laying out for us the last few weeks. About the souls, about what's going on in heaven, what's going on in hell, how it all fits together into one big piece that spells out purgatory. Anyway, super proud of Jensen for all that, though. It looks fun on the surface, but there's a lot of good stuff in this episode. And we will start exploring more of it and more of Dean's problems with Sam that he never really got to get addressed during this episode since they were too busy freeing Bobby's soul. But he will have a lot more ammunition in that department after next week's episode, Season 6, Episode 5, Live Free or Twy Hard. That one where Dean becomes a vampire for a hot minute. And we learn about more things that Sam knows that Dean doesn't. That Sam can provide plausible but increasingly less plausible deniability about as the season progresses. And he's just looking more and more shady. Until next week, you can find me on Tumblr at Mittensmorgle or at SPN George. You can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865 or you can email me at mittensmorgle at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. And oh boy, I am so glad that one just didn't go on forever and ever and ever. I curbed myself to only talk about things that I thought were like actually important to season six or to a character's overall arc. And didn't just go off on tangents about Gavin and Crowley's entire arc and how it relates to Cass's entire arc and yes I actually can be brief if I really try (laughs) very proud of myself for that one anyway have a good one everyone